Okay, well, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome again to this year's version of Waste Expo um, for our CEO interview. It's one of my um, particularly favorite things to do during Waste Expo is to talk to some of the, the prominent leaders in our industry and uh, to get to know them a little bit better. And I know everybody looks forward to these interviews. And today we have Patrick DeVigi with us. Good morning, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Um, and uh, Patrick, if you don't mind, I'm going to read your bio for everybody uh, real quickly, and then we'll then we'll get started with some uh, questions and talk to you a little bit about your background, et cetera. All right. Okay. Patrick is the founder, president, and CEO and chairman of the board of directors of GFL. In 2007, Patrick had a vision to create a company that is a one-stop shop provider of environmental solutions. Since then, drawing on the discipline he learned in his early hockey career as a goalie, no less, I believe, um, Patrick has driven GFL to become the fourth largest environmental service co services company in North America. Patrick has instilled an entrepreneurial culture at GFL's leadership team um, and a focus on operational excellence, sustainability, and safety. In 2017, he was recognized by Waste360 with the Top 40 Under 40 Award. Patrick is also driven by a passion to give back to charities in, in, our, in the host communities in which they do business. In addition to being a regular supporter of those charities um, and local health and family initiatives, he contributed $5 million to help create the Davigi Family Sports Medicine Clinic. You guys could have helped me with my uh, Achilles tendon this winter, so I'm just now getting back up and around. A first-of-its-kind sports medicine research and care facility providing support to individuals with sports-related injuries. Patrick currently serves on the board of directors of EREF and the Toronto General and Western Hospital Foundation. So thanks again, Patrick, for, for joining us today. And I know a lot of people um, are curious about you and curious about GFL. So we appreciate you opening up today and giving us a few minutes to, to talk about your background. Um, I normally start these interviews with, with allowing you to, to speak a little bit about your family and your personal pastimes. And you know, given your uh, sports background, I'm kind of curious to know what you what you still do to to stay fit and uh, what you're passionate about relative to sports. Yeah, so thank you very much. Uh, you know, I guess hockey was always sort of a, a pinnacle of my life. I, I grew up in a small city in Canada in northern Ontario with you know, 80,000 people. Um, you know, best known were Wayne Gretzky played junior hockey and the Esposito brothers grew up, which are sort of distant relatives. Um, so, you know, being born to uh, an immigrant mother and a father who was always in business and uh, taught business at, at a high school in the city. And my mother was a uh, grade one and a grade two teacher, you know, sort of just with that premise, grew up in a, you know, very sort of tight-knit community in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, um, where hockey was sort of the foundation of, of who I am today. It was a big part of my life. It was a big part of everyone's life up there, to be honest. And, uh, you know, grew up in Sault Ste. Marie, and, and hockey afforded me the ability to actually be able to leave Sault Ste. Marie at a fairly young age as, you know, I, I excelled in that sport. And sort of as I 
excelled, you know, had to move on to greener pastures and, you know, left home when I was 14 to go and play hockey in Southern Ontario, where, you know, which was the metropolis of, of the hockey back then. And sort of, you know, that sort of formed the basis for me to actually build roots in Southern Ontario. And sort of here I am today. Oh, very good. That's, that's very interesting. And, uh, you know, how did, how did you manage to go from uh, hockey once you retired from that career to the waste industry? Did you uh, did you know people? Did you just uh, uh, say, yeah. hey, this looks like a good industry? How did that happen? <laughs> it's interesting. You know, I worked at a little fund that managed money that made in investments in environmental services businesses. And one of the investments that we had made uh, actually went horribly wrong and I got stuck <laughs> low man on the totem pole to try and go in and actually, um, you know, identify the problems, turn it around and, and get that business sold. Um, and coincidentally enough, there was a very other, there was another successful startup in Canada that was doing, you know, virtually the same thing, which was BFI Canada at the time. Um, and really just saw what they were doing. And then they had recently expanded in 2005 into the U.S. and saw an opportunity for another startup in Canada to basically start up in Canada and do it, you know, but more of an environmental services model, more around ESG related initiatives, um, because first and foremost, in the early days, we couldn't afford a landfill. So the landfill wasn't an option. So we needed another way to compete, hence the name Green for Life and more of a focus around diversion, recycling, and some of the new stewardship programs that we saw coming to the forefront um, that were going to lead Canada similar to Europe, which weren't as prevalent in the U.S. 13, 14 years ago. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about the name of your company, Green for Life. Did you did you name the company? I did. Yeah, well, you must have a, a strong environmental uh you know, ethic or philosophy or, or something like that, that, you know, there must be a story behind that. So. There was, it was just, you know, again, I think it was, you know, the industry had used the name waste in their name for a lot of time. And truthfully, if you, if you looked around Europe and various parts of Asia, the waste was becoming not a great word. Um, so it was, what could we do to differentiate ourselves from the competition? What could we show them? that yes, we can landfill, yes, we have access to landfills, but what could we do differently? How could we market ourselves and brand ourselves differently? And what could we do internally to be able to, you know, divert different streams from landfill and be perceived as being, you know, greener than the next guy? And that would give us the competitive advantage versus just selling on price, et cetera. Oh, great. Hey, you know, one thing we like to talk about is just, you know, kind of your leadership philosophy, how you motivate people, that kind of thing. And we also like to learn, especially about people that have motivated you in your life. And obviously, being a professional hockey player, you've met some very interesting characters and very interesting leaders um, that that have shaped you and formed you. I wonder if you could talk about some of the the people in your in your life that have that have uh, you know helped you develop your leadership philosophies, you know, on and off of the ice, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, when you when you look at it, I go, you know, we I think what attracts people to to be a GFL is a lot of those philosophies that truly I learned from hockey, and I say it all the time. I mean, if I look at the best coaches I had over the years and the best teams, it wasn't always it wasn't always the team that had the A plus talent that you know went the furthest and the deepest. It was you know being led by a coach that you know allowed us to play the game and didn't run a dictatorship. And I think when I 
when that spills over to the to GFL, it's again picking the right talent, but also allowing people to be involved and make decisions and just not being told what to do and what playbook they have to execute in order to get it done. Listen, I, I, I'm a firm believer that I don't know anywhere near as amount of the markets as the people that we have running our markets. We have to rely on them as the entrepreneur in that market to be able to tell us what's happening in the market. And then we get to be able to make decisions and we make those decisions collaboratively and we allow people and empower them to make decisions and run their business. Um, and I think when you get that, you know, people feel more involved, they feel more engaged, they feel more attached to the company um, and they want to see the company succeed. You know, when I started in this business a while ago on the weekends, I used to work on the scale at the transfer stations. Right. And yeah. I always, you know, it always resonated in my head when certain drivers from certain companies would come in and all they would do is complain about the companies that they worked for and all the things that the companies did wrong etc. And then you listen to the other drivers that came from the other companies and would just talk about how happy they were and how loyal they were and what made them stay at that specific company for so long. And it wasn't money. It wasn't this. It was literally just the simple value of respect and being treated like an equal, um, you know, by management or the family that owned the business. And that created that sort of loyalty. And that's what we've tried to create um, at GFL. Now, we've done it on a sort of lot larger of a scale, and that's why each one of the management that we have in the specific regions in the nine provinces in Canada and 23 states in the U.S. are, you know, extremely important to us and, you know, adopt the same culture um, that we have because that's what we want to empower them to do, and we want to create that loyalty, and we want to create GFL as the, the place that people want to work. Well, very good. I can certainly relate to empowering people and not you know, micromanaging people and just hiring good talent and uh, turning them loose. You know, I, I manage a lot of uh, very uh, type A lobbyists here, here in Washington, D.C., and uh, they, they do their best work when you give them some uh, independence and allow them to, uh, you know, kind of, kind of uh, you know, drive their own path. So I appreciate that. So it's September 9th, I believe, when we're recording this interview and COVID still remains with us. Um, you know, I know the COVID experience up in Canada has been just a little bit different than the U.S. Um, and, um, you know, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about COVID, how it's affected your business, what your thoughts are on the on the future, and, uh, you know, maybe talk a little bit about how uh, things have been a little bit different in Canada than they than they have been in the U.S. Sure. I mean, like like everyone, no one knew what to expect. I think um, you know, the solid waste sector for sure has proved to be more resilient than maybe people would have originally thought. Um, you know, volumes continued, you know, to be down, but I think that could be expected. But by and large, um, you know, when you look at across the industry and specifically our company, I think we've uh, weathered the storm um, extremely well. Um, you know, I look at case counts on a daily basis, again, having 14,000 plus employees, um, and just ensuring that we're doing all the right things to ensure that we're not having, you know, COVID outbreaks, particularly in hauling yards and recycling facilities, transfer stations, landfills, um, and some of our wastewater processing facilities, as well as soil remediation facilities. Um, you know, and we're still under 100 cases throughout the entire company, um, really, since the beginning. So I think the measures that we've put in place, um, you know, have yielded a good result. I mean, it's been a big change. Um, for people not being able to get a lot of FaceTime. I mean, Zoom calls are great. 
Um, but it's you know I, I'm still a firm believer that it doesn't it doesn't replace being in the same room and reading body language and shaking hands etc. So I mean that's going to change and you know we've had to really change how we do business. But I think you know like anything you know that will go away. I mean I read a great article from the guys at Brookfield the other day. It's like you know when the fax machine came out and the telephones came out and the people you know thought that that was going to be the end of travel and meetings etc and i you know i i again i'm hopeful we get a vaccine and we get through covid i mean i think in canada um you know i think canadians by and large um you know generally have a perspective on doing what the government tells them to do and i think in the us i mean it's there's a you know a clear divide between sort of blue and red states um in the us and there's you know, just I don't know what you're talking about. So everybody's, you know, handled a little bit differently. Um, you know, maybe the way the U.S. handled it in the end will be right. Yes, they have a lot more cases, but, you know, the deaths are, you know, going down drastically. And I think, you know, hopefully with that and then with a, a, a vaccine that seems to be coming sooner rather than later, at least everybody hopes that, we, you know, we're going to turn this corner sometime in 2021. But, you know, I think we we're still running the business the same way with some changes. We're still getting acquisitions done, uh, you know, limiting travel to essential travel only. And I think, you know, it, when it turns, it's going to be a good thing for everyone. But for now, we're, uh, you know, we're keeping everyone safe and most importantly, getting waste picked up off the streets and continuing on as business as usual. Yeah, well, I, I certainly have Zoom call burnout myself. And, uh, you know, I think, think people should take a wait till this is over and take a breath before they go planning, you know, the rest of their business lives, you know, in, in the current situation. I, I certainly agree with that. And um, I'm glad to hear that, uh, you know, your company is weathering the storm. It seems as though the entire industry has done a great job of weathering the storm. You know, we haven't had any uh, large waste disasters throughout the country, which, uh, you know, things could certainly have been very different and hopefully they, they'll, they'll stay this way. But there's been lots of opportunities to be proud of the industry. And I'm, I'm sure you're very proud of, you know, all that all that your company has done as well. Um, I do want to get your thoughts and perspectives. You know, COVID will pass and we'll get beyond this and we'll we'll have to get back to the to the daily grind of, of of the issues that face the industry and one of those issues is certainly safety in the industry you know texting and driving i don't know how it is in canada but it's pretty bad in the us we have a lot of issues relative to uh things going on on the highways and the roads and affecting our workers um can you talk just a little bit about safety and uh, if there's a difference between canada and the us let, let us know yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think, again, varies by state in the U.S., but I think Canada has taken a very hard line with texting and driving. I mean, today it's an automatic suspension of three days that you lose your license if you get caught texting and driving. So, um, you know, I think we've all done it. I think we can't do it. There has to be zero tolerance around it just because of how dangerous it is. I mean, it's things happen sort of in a blink of an eye. Um, but I think, you know, legislators on both sides of the border are taking this very seriously and i think you know us as companies have zero tolerance policies for it and i think as you know people just get retrained uh their mind to think you know no different than was wearing a seatbelt, etc i think that that is going to continue to be um visible and as legislation changes in all the states and provinces in canada 
again, I think it's just going to be at people's top of mind. But it's again, it's just reinforcing that in the brains of, you know, not only our drivers, everyone that just texting and driving is not acceptable. And it's a, you know, I mean, I think today it causes more deaths than actually drinking and driving. So um, it's something that has to be at the top of mind of everyone and just constantly reinforcing that, um, you know, in the brains and heads of, of, of everyone, not only our drivers. Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting uh, law you just referenced. I can I can feel some of my lobbying staff, you know, looking that up right now, and you know, maybe that's something we need to try to start pushing in in the U.S. Um, hey, can we shift a little bit and talk just a little bit about GFL and kind of what your what your future plans are relative to Canada versus U.S. et cetera? Um, I know that you know you've gone through an IPO, and congratulations, by the way right in the smack middle of the of the pandemic. So that must have been quite a challenge. And, and maybe you can tell us how that went and uh, um, talk a little bit about your about your future plans for the company. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, listen, we've we've been through multiple private equity firms over the last 14 years. And I think it was inevitable that we would become a public company at some point. Um, you know, the shareholders had very specific views on value at the time of the IPO, and that's why, you know, we didn't proceed in late 2019 um, and had a significant amount of inbound interest from investors. That's why we went back to the market in early 2020, obviously not knowing that uh, the COVID backdrop would be on our backs. Um, that being said, you know, we got the transaction done, I think, probably a couple of days before the COVID outbreak actually happened. and. You know, it wasn't exactly how we anticipated spending our first few months of being a public company, right. um, updating investors about what they just invested in and, and the business, but sort of got through that. And I think, you know, a big part of the thesis of going public is we saw, you know, two larger opportunities that we wanted that worked well and fit well with our business and our geography, which were the waste management ADS divestures and assuming we were able to successfully get those acquire the assets from from Macquarie for the, from WCA. Um, so even through COVID, I think both of those, uh, you know, proved out and we were able to successfully get both of those transactions signed up and now just waiting for DOJ approval on both of those. Um, and then I think, listen, we're going to turn ourselves to, you know, integrating these assets and going back to doing what we've always done well, which is sort of you know, extrapolate as much value as we can out of the assets and then go back to our sort of normal tuck-in program. You know, when you look at the business today, operating in nine provinces in Canada and, you know, post these two transactions, we'll be operating in 27 states in the U.S. You know, that's a great, uh, you know, ground to grow from within great markets. And I think you'll continue to see us play in those markets, both in Canada and in the U.S. I mean, we had a plan, you know, pre-IPO, you know, the business was generating about a billion dollars of EBITDA. I mean, my plan was over five to seven years would be to double the size of the business. And I think, you know, getting these two acquisitions done really set us on path to do that. And I think, you know, comfortably we can do that over the next sort of five to seven years. And that, that was our goal um, sort of going into this. Oh, great. Hey, you know, and congratulations on, on all of that and all of your, your recent successes. And I, you know, you, you found out yesterday that you have another success coming. The National Waste and Recycling Association um, gave a facility, Canada Fibers, one of your facility, a um, recycling 
um, Facility of the Year Award. So, you know, we're going to be releasing a, a press release very shortly on that. So um, congratulations on, on that award. There was a lot of stiff competition this year. So um, thank you. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a beautiful facility. I mean, listen, you know, again, going back to the guys at Canada Fibers do a, a great job and, you know, I've been around the industry a long time. And take my hat off to those guys and all the staff that really built that facility because, you know, they did it with limited time. Um, and, you know, the city of Winnipeg didn't have a great experience with the last service provider and, and we're really looking for change. And our guys brought their sort of best manager practices and their expertise to the table and we're able to get that. So it's very nice um, and thankful to you um, and the rest of the team there to actually recognize them because that always uh, goes a long way. No worries. And that's a, a member selected award. So staff has, has no hands in that. But uh, so that's even even better. So, um, hey, just a couple more questions and we'll let you go. I know you're a extremely busy person. Um, you know, um, there's been a lot of uh, uprising, especially in the U.S. about race relations and that kind of thing. And we in the industry are constantly trying to work on on um, issues such as that. I know we have, um, you know, quite an initiative to bring more women into the uh, waste industry, which is desperately needed. I think we're something like 95 percent male um, and we need to get, you know, the other 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 side of that into the to the workforce. Um, and, you know, with with race relations flaring up and that kind of thing, you know, companies have you know responsibility to help out as best they can in that regard. And I'm sure you guys have have given that some thought. So can you talk a little bit about, um, um, you know, just integrating, you know, more voices into the waste industry? Yeah, I mean, it's always been a big focus of ours. You know, women have always been, uh, you know, a, a big part of, you know, what we try and do. Um, you know, we've developed the Women in Waste program here at GFL, so promoting, you know, women, et cetera, in, in this. So I think we've we've done that, you know, from before. Now with the latest movements, again, you know, we're retooling exactly how we hire and giving opportunities to everyone, sort of not just based on, on race, but again, just creating opportunities and really creating, you know, training programs from breeding within. And I'm a big believer that you breed from within. Um, and you groom from within because, you know, keeping loyalty and keeping people within the company are always your best dollar spent um, and creating those opportunities for everyone. Um, and, you know, our drivers sometimes become our best managers and managers become our best executives. And I think if you can create that dynamic, um, you know, you're going to have a successful result. So, I mean, we are, you know, it, it's top of mind for us and will continue to be top of mind and we will keep developing these programs sort of moving forward. Yeah, well, well, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, my last question for you is, you know, um, related to NWRA itself and, you know, we're we're the advocates for the industry and uh, we try to try to make sure that we are well representing what's going on in the industry. We've had a you know, very, very busy time during COVID, probably the most busy time I have ever seen in the in the advocacy world in my 20 years in D.C. Um, due to just the number of issues we had to tackle relative to the to the crisis. Um, but one, you know, thank you so much for your continued membership and support of NWRA. And what can we do to, to serve you uh, better? What, what sorts of public policy issues do you see on the horizon that we should be paying attention to as your trade association? 
Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at it, I mean, it's just it's really trying to get consistency um, across, you know, the various regions. I think it there's a, you know, a lot of inconsistencies between different geographies in the U.S. And I think if we can just sort of move, you know, to sort sort of more one sort of common platform and one set of sort of rules and regulations, I think it's going to yield a great result and help everybody and allow us to make the investments that we need to make you know, in different geographies based on that sort of regulation change. And I mean, we've seen that evolve in Canada over the last 10 years, whether it was around food waste, whether it was around recycling, whether it was around extender producer responsibility, whether it was around sort of around landfill gas to energy, whether it was around diversion of contaminated soils, et cetera, just actually allowing us to, you know, have an idea of where things are going and being able to allow us to make the investments that we need to make in the business to keep up with where things are moving. And I think right, as right. that continues to evolve, I think it's just going to make it easier and easier for all of us to, you know, really make those capital expenditures where we need to. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. We, we, um, we, we've, just, we've started looking um, um, at a uh, possibility of, you know, doing some um, um, joint, having some joint conversations with the municipalities and the like, trying to work on the consistency issue. I, I agree with you. I think it's, you know, one of the, one of the biggest problems, you know, it's, it has evolved naturally and there are reasons for the inconsistency between states. Um, but I think there's work that can be done there and we're going to try to try to start putting some energy towards that and see what, see what we can do. It's a, it's a big challenge, especially between the states. So, um, you know, and uh, well, you know, it's 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 something that, you know, I hear mentioned, you know, just talking to regular people all the time. It's one of the things that just, you know, comes up in regular conversations all the time. So I think we're, you know, we're going to put some energy towards that and, uh, you know, look for some help from the industry and see, see what we can uh, see what we can accomplish. But hey, Patrick, thanks so much for your time today. Do you have anything else you want to want to say to everybody? Um, yeah. Here at uh, this year's version of uh, Waste Expo. Great. <laughs> right. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Okay. Thank you. Have a good day. You too, boy. Bye.